This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 584, and the quote of the day is, just because you're not working doesn't mean you don't have work to do. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 584, and we got a doozy. We got the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Omar Hakim. And I don't, if you don't know who Omar Hakim is, maybe you live under a rock or on a different planet, but he's worked with everyone. He's worked with Weather Report, he's worked with David Bowie, Sting, Madonna, Dire Straits, Journey, George Benson, Miles Davis. Daft Punk, and he has so much knowledge and information that you might want to grab a notebook while you're going through this conversation because he's dropping nugget after nugget. And he is one of my biggest influences as a drummer, and I know that he has influenced so many drummers around the world, not only for his playing, but also who he is as a person and his humility, and he's approachable, and he is a student of the craft and always has been and always will be. And that is something that is very admirable as far as I'm concerned, because I try to live by the quote, ignorance is thinking you're no longer a student. And Omar embodies that mantra as well. He is always learning. He is always reinventing himself. And we talk about that when he went through a a reinvention of himself with electronic drums and drum programming and, and all of these things that he's had to adapt to throughout his career and that's something that we all can learn from so i'm not going to waste any more time let's get into it with the one and only mr omar hakeem are you ready are you ready on drums my man omar hakeem Omar Hakeem, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, man. I have I have been listening to you, and I'm sure that you hear this all the time, but I have been listening to you play drums since as long as I can remember. Oh, wow. um, you have been such an influence, not only on me, but countless drummers around the world. And I'm interested to know... Who were your influences growing up? What were some of the things that you were listening to? And I know you have your your father is a musician. That's right. Uh, grew up in a musical family, so you had an early start. But yes, what what were some of the things that you were listening to as a child that influenced you? Wow. Well, where do I start with that one? The the first drummer that I remember hearing as a little little kid, and it was mainly because my mom and dad used to play his records in the house was Art Blakey. Mm-hmm. Uh, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Um, but also Buddy Rich, Max Roach, uh, Philly Joe, 
Elvin Jones. Uh, I, you know, his work with John Coltrane, of course. Right. And actually, John Coltrane was uh, a dear friend of my parents. So I, I have childhood memories of going to Train's house as a kid. Uh, and and um, yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. I mean, at, at the time, I didn't understand. I was wondering, did you know that was John yeah. Coltrane? I mean, you yeah. know who he is, but do you yeah. know he's John Coltrane? Yeah, like, at, you know, at age four or five years old, you know, and his right. babysitting me while my my mom and dad go go out with he and his wife and hang and whatever. You know, also in our neighborhood, um, Roy Haynes lived in our neighborhood. And I, I have memories of driving down Hollis Avenue, seeing him uh, mow his lawn with the kids playing in the yard. And <laughs> nice. You know, it's a really musical community. Uh, James Brown even had a house in St. Albans, Jamaica, Queens, New York. Uh, mm -hmm. Lenny White grew up around there. Um, it's a long list of musicians and friends. Uh, Marcus Miller's from the area. Mm -hmm. uh, we grew up playing in bands together. But uh, more influences with drumming. Um, you know, I just said his name, Lenny White. Right, uh, huge influence because I was a huge Return of Forever fan. Mm -hmm. It's hard and, not to uh, be, right? Oh yeah, man. <laughs> and, and again, because he was from the neighborhood, I I uh, used to visit uh, my aunt and uncle, and I, I had a bunch of friends in their neighborhood. And I remember like riding bikes around and hearing this drummer practicing in the basement. And uh, I asked my friend. Uh, actually a bass player named Barry Johnson, who also known as Barry Sun John Johnson, played actually in Lenny White's 29 band years later. Oh. But I, I, I said to Barry, Barry, who's that drummer? It's like amazing. He said, that's Lenny White. He plays for a band called Azteca. Hmm. So this is even before. Well before. Well yeah. before Return to Forever Days. And, and I'm hearing Lenny White practicing in the basement. Well, that whole, I mean, that area, even, you know, later into the 80s and 90s had a very, very influential sort of music, uh, music community happening in Jamaica, Queens, for sure. Right. Even even up into into the musicians that were coming out there and then and then the hip hop artists that came out of there. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really incredible. Um, uh, you know, when I think of the hip hop people, um, well, like Russell Simmons. And Run DMC, they're from Hollis, and I, and I used to see them all the time. LL Cool J, mm -hmm. um, Salt and Pepper, right? Uh, you know, they're all from Queens, from Jamaica, Queens. There's a there's a high school there, and I don't know what the high school is, and you you may know it, uh, but I know that there's like five or six huge hip hop guys that that all went to the same high school. Oh, I wonder which one. Now that one, I don't know. I, I forget who it was, and I remember reading, but it was like I feel like it was uh, like it was like Jay Z and like mm -hmm. and Nas and a couple other people, and it's like they all went to the same high school. Wow, man! You know, you know something in the water in Jamaica, Queens, New York. I tell I you, man, I think so. I really, think so. A beautiful musical environment. But let me let me keep talking about influences because I had many, and they weren't just in jazz. Uh, mm -hmm. I just because, you know, the first music I heard as a kid growing up was jazz. My dad was a jazz trombonist who played for Count Basie and Duke Ellington uh, and Louis Armstrong. So, of course, I grew up in that jazz tradition in the house 
learning jazz, playing jazz, learning that language very young. But at the same time, the kids my age were listening to, and again, I'm talking 60s and 70s, so we were listening to Motown. Uh, we were listening to everything from Sly and the Family Stone to uh, Aretha Franklin to, on, and then on the rock side of things, you know, the Beatles, uh, Yes, uh, the Rolling Stones. You know, when I think about uh, James Brown, for instance, who I who had a house in in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, Clyde Stubblefield and uh, John Johnville Starks. I mean, you have to name these guys. The drummer for Sly, Greg Arico, mm -hmm. uh, another huge influence on me. Uh, Bernard Purdy, who was like session master. You know, he was on everything during that time. And, yeah. you know, uh, the drummers in the neighborhood had to know how to play the solo to rock steady. You had to learn that right. solo. Dude, can you play rock steady? You know, you can't <laughs> But also, there's another drummer that people don't talk about that also uh, played on Aretha Franklin hits, who, whose feel and groove that I love, Roger Hawkins. Mm -hmm. um, you know, are you familiar with Alan Schwartzberg? Of course. I never even heard of him until uh, I just mentioned I was talking to Ralph Roll, and he brought him up, and I was like, I'd never even heard of him. I was well, like, I don't know. And then I looked him up, and I was like. How have I never heard of this? Oh guy? man, Alan was the man in New York. And when I was coming up in the session scene, you know, trying to break in, mm -hmm. there were a few cats who were like the cats in the studio. Steve Gadd, Alan, and um, oh God, how can I have this uh, brain fart right now? Because I'm, I can see his face. Um, who played on like a bunch of GRP records. I am so embarrassed right now because I'm speaking <laughs> out. Um, I'm going to come back to him because, you know, he he was like a cat who I got a chance to watch play a lot. I got a chance to watch all of them. But Alan Schwartzberg in particular, you know, when, you know I, I remember doing sessions playing percussion. Mm -hmm. And... You know, because I couldn't break in as a drummer. So I was like, you know, I'll just do whatever I can do. Right. right? Just waiting for my shot to play drum set. Right. And what was the uh, technique to break in then? How did you just had to, I mean, you well, made. It was all about a recommendation. It yeah. was all about, you know, somebody hearing you and knowing, loving your playing and saying, take a chance on this kid, you know? And right. uh, I was on a jingle date once and, um, uh, Alan had a session that was booked pretty tight on, you know, behind the session we were on at that moment. Mm. And he had to leave. It was like something really important, you know, like a, who knows, like a Donna Summer record or something. He was like, right, right. hits, right? So he had to get out of there. He was like, the producer was like, you can't go. He's like, listen, I got to go. And so the producer looks at me, Hakeem, you're up. <laughs> you play drums right i was like yeah you're up <laughs> thank you alan schwarzberg yeah yeah <laughs> take it off that day and uh and then and then it started from there and i started getting more session work in the city it amazes me how there's these little stories or this little thing that may have potentially changed the whole trajectory of That's someone's right. career or something where it's like you know, I showed up and and this person got. I think that's how I think that's how Steve Gad got into the scene. There was like a snowstorm or something, 
Oh, yeah. And someone was supposed to make the date and they couldn't. And Steve was in town already and See? and was like, okay, I can come do it. And then he became Steve Gadd. Exactly. It's so amazing. It's so amazing. These little, just these little tiny things that could. No, it's, it's true. And it's all about who you know and breaking into the 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 scene with with these recommendations and you know people really putting in a good word for you and believing mm-hmm. in you and back then too you know it wasn't about uh social media you know i i used right. to i used to walk around new york city with my stick bag all day right you know, i always had my stick bag with me because you never know when you're going to walk into a situation and and it breaks out into a jam session Right. Or it's marketing when someone sees you on the street, right? Exactly. You know, so it was very different in the in the late 70s and early 80s, you know. Mm-hmm. I w- you know, you being in that session and Alan leaving and they say, "Okay, Omar, you're up." The thing is, some people may look at it from the outside and say, "Oh, he got lucky." But the thing is, if you weren't prepared for that, and you hadn't done all the the work necessary to be able to deliver on that session. That may have been your first and last session ever. <laughs> that is right, man. Right, <laughs> <was> a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And the funny thing is, um, you know, maybe that happened when I was around nineteen, but I had I had started playing pro with my dad at age ten. Mm-hmm. And I did my first tour of the United States at age 15. So I had already been a working and busy young drummer right. before I got to high school. And you were the you were the t- sort of the focal point at, at one point with your dad's band, right? Didn't they like change the name of the band to add oh, you? God, it was so embarrassing. It was like <laughs> Hassan and the Nomads featuring Omar, the 10-year-old drum sensation or something. <laughs> I love it. Embarrassing like that. And but you know it was really beautiful memories and um i you know my recollection of the early gigs with my dad because i was 10 so i sort of remember walking in and playing the gig and then i never quite remembered how i ended up in bed you know the next morning because i guess i you know nine or ten o'clock i would be passed out my dad would put me in the car and put me in bed (laughs) You know, it's amazing like on stage and then wake up the next morning in bed it was like was i dreaming <laughs> <laughs> am i really a professional drummer or am i just dreaming this all the time <laughs> but um and then you know so that was like 10 i i worked with my dad uh 10 11 12 maybe 13 but then the the guys in the neighborhood you know there were some local bands that i started playing with you know and i started playing gigs with them so you know, I wasn't available to do those. Plus, I wanted to play with my friends. Right. Because you know I mean? right. they were playing like funk and rock and, you know, R&B and, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's always that, you know, when you're young, you know, it's like, well, I want to do what my friends are doing, you know. Right. But having the the sort of steady diet of jazz on one hand and popular music on the other hand really shaped my approach to drumming quite young. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, because I was, I was open-minded and loving music and wanting to play every day, all day. And it didn't matter, I guess, starting off with jazz, you know, uh, starting off with the improvisational language, you know, I, I was pretty comfortable 
going other places. And then I just, I just had to learn how to groove differently. You know what I mean? Right. I had to move from like, you know, kind of figure out how to go into the funk R and B rock language. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And also build up the strength and the stamina to play that music too. Pretty young. Right. That I was going to ask that because you, you're from a, a different, a different genre of drummers where I look at, you know, guys who are coming up now, it seems like most of them don't have that well-rounded vocabulary. They don't understand jazz and funk and rock and fusion and R and B and, and are able to play all those things. But for you, when you were coming up and, and all of your constituents, it's, it was required learning almost, right? How did you learn all of those styles and, and get good at all of those styles. And well, what advice do you have for other people who are, are looking well, to do the same? Honestly, a lot of it was driven by uh, survival. You know what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I sort of knew young that I was going to be a professional musician. I had other interests. And I guess because I was in the environment young because of my dad and then i started playing with local bands at 12 13 and then 15 i'm on tour you know it was my path was pretty felt pretty set you know what i mean right and, and so i was in the the pro musician mindset pretty young which also made me aware of the competitive nature of the environment you know mm -hmm. because why would a producer hire me over Alan Schwartzberg or over Steve Gadd or over Buddy Williams. That's the name I was trying that's, to think of. Yeah, that's Buddy Ralph Williams. was talking about him a lot too. He Buddy was like, Cunningham. I saw all these guys on the back of the of the records, and I was like, I need to know all these people. Yeah, see, Buddy, you know, um, and he worked at the Apollo, right? He was he the house drummer the Apollo, the a session master. You know, like Buddy was just ridiculous, man, and and um, I I used to um watch him play uh in local gigs and in the studio i was in a i was working with an artist uh, who got signed to grp records mm -hmm. Grusen and rosen productions uh dave grusen uh composer uh pianist um um larry rosen recording engineer producer they started uh, Gruce and Rosen Productions in the probably in the mid 70s. Mm -hmm. And I think some of their early artists were people like Dave Valentine and Angela Bofill. And uh, I think word was that uh, Angela and Buddy were dating when they were. Oh, really? Yeah. But um, Buddy played on her first album pro and probably played on everything that GRP did in those early days. Mm -hmm. And I was working with a trumpet player named Tom Brown, an amazing jazz trumpet player who was also a, a pilot. And um, the band, um, he, he, he wanted to become an artist. He had signed with uh, George Benson's manager, a guy named Jimmy Boyd. And they were looking for a deal for Tom. So we're we're writing music for Tom as a band, learning his stuff. The band was Tom on trumpet, uh, Bobby Franceschini on saxophones, uh, Marcus Miller on bass, uh, Bernard Wright on keyboards, 
Bobby Broom on guitar. Man. And myself on drums. We were teenagers. Right, right. This band was amazing. And we were playing at a club in Spanish Harlem uh, every weekend. I guess this might have been summer of 77, 78. We had just graduated high. Marcus and I just graduated from music and art. And um, the, the club was called the Breezen Lounge. Nice. Now, the Breezen Lounge was probably uh, Jimmy Boyd's club. He named it after George Benson's George big Benson. hit rec- record, Breezen. Right? So he probably took that cash and started this club. Right. And, and, and we were playing in the club, man. And um, and I remember the night that uh, Grusin and Rosen came to the club to hear us play. And uh, they offered Tom Brown a deal. And um, I ended up going on tour that summer with Hugh Masekela. So I missed the first record date. Um, uh, so, and, but Buddy Williams played drums on that record. Oh. But I, I was around for the second record date with Tom Brown. The album was called Love Approach. Mm-hmm. And the hit song in there was called Funkin' for Jamaica, New York. Uh, hmm. Her name, Tony Smith, sang lead. We used to tease her called a little Chaka. She had an awesome voice. R.I.P. to her because she passed on recently. Beautiful. Oh, man. Um, but, uh, I, and Buddy Williams played on the hit single. And I, I was there when they cut it. It was it was pretty amazing to watch a master at work. Yeah. And yeah. then I played on like two or three songs on the record because I was in Tom's live band. And mm-hmm. I also wrote one of the songs on that record. And and that was sort of the thing that got me, you know, Larry Rosen was really cool. He was like, do you have a publishing company? And I was like, what's a publishing company? <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna get a pu- you're gonna go, you're gonna form a publishing company. He basically schooled me on how really? to set up my publishing business so that he could pay me my royalties. Huh. He was really cool. And huh. he could have done it a completely different way and ripped me off. Yeah, there I mean there was a lot of that happening. Yeah, but it, he educated me. Hmm. And uh, and it was really helpful. And I ended up writing for quite a few of the, the GRP artists. And it was nice as a as a teenager just to get royalty checks for songwriting. Right. You know what right. I mean? Like, wow, yeah. this is cool. You know? What what's your writing process as a drummer? I always think it's a little bit more difficult than if you, you know, if you're a guitar player or a bass player or a piano well, player. Well, I've I've always tinkled around with the guitar and the piano. So my, you know, there I, I don't call myself a pianist or a guitarist, but those are my writing tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and actually I did my first solo album for GRP records and I'm playing a lot of keyboards and guitar on that record. That, that record was called rhythm deep. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of it was me, uh, formulating ideas and concepts on piano and guitar. My writing partner at the time was, uh, my dear friend, James Golden, who's a fantastic, uh, collaborator, lyricist, poet, writer, uh, so he really, and this was actually James and I started writing music uh, even before the GRP days, just for fun. You know, mm-hmm. he, he was, uh, 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 he worked at a radio station actually in um, 
Woodside, Queens, New York called WWRL. And that was the station that if you grew up in the New York area, um, that was the R&B station in the 60s and 70s, sort of before WBLS took over Mm -hmm. on FM. But before that, AM radio, 1600, uh, WWRL. Um, There was a a DJ on there named Gary Bird, uh, who we used to listen to and eventually became friends with all of these guys because James worked at the station. And then he hired me to be his assistant. And he came up, well, actually, he and I came up with a playlist concept uh, to... uh, to, to create the playlist based on relative music keys to, mm. to get a more musical flow. Right. So, so my job for WWRL was to uh, key the records. So James would send me all of the records that they were considering for the playlist. I would have to listen to them all and make a chart and tell him what key all of the records were in and what huh. the relative keys were that would work with that. Right, so I, right. created, I created a chart and I guess James came up with that idea because he was a trombone player in one of the local bands that I played with as a kid. He was taking trombone lessons from my dad. So we became friends uh, very right. young. But huh. he so the so, you know, part of my songwriting thing and interest in it came from writing songs with him young, you know, being around piano and guitar because of my aunts and uncles. Uh, and then keying the records, having to listen to the songs, learning, I'm, I'm learning them. So right, I, I'm right. learning the songwriting process while I'm listening. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, to the point where I could just, you know, put a record on and just start learning to play the chords on piano and guitar right away. Right. You know, one of the things that I've noticed about people who have long-standing careers, like you have in in multiple different genres and 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 multiple different decades and styles and all those things, is that there's sort of this natural progression into all these other things. Where I think, from an outsider's perspective, we think, okay, I need to learn all these styles. I need to learn production. I need to learn songwriting. I need to learn this. I need to learn that. And then you sit down and say, okay, let me try. How am I going to do all this at once? But what I've noticed in doing all these interviews, it seems like, well, you know, I started playing, I was in a band and I grew up in a household and I was listening to a lot of records and then this thing happened. So I started to do a little bit of this and I started to do a bit of it and then things start to just take shape. And then you realize you're 10 years in and you've listened to thousands and thousands of records and written all these songs and things like that. It And it seems like that's the way that, that your career started and and grew as well is that right that is absolutely right it's it's it was a slow steady process of of evolution and learning mm-hmm. and um you know and 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 it was all guided by the love of music you know what i mean uh, even though my dad was a was a jazz musician primarily he he was really all about if it's great quality then right on Right, you know what What's I mean. What's that saying? There's two. There's two kinds of music: good music yeah, and yeah, bad music. Bad music, exactly. <laughs> so you know, and and I remember, you know, I'd be listening to like, you know, Sly or Earth, Wind and Fire, or you know, the Beatles, or you know, Mother's Finest, or or whatever I was listening to, and he would come in and sit with me and listen, 
Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he was like, wow, I like that song. You know, what is that? You know, so it's all about an open mind when you're a musician. It's all about uh, the process of growth, which actually never ends. You know, I, I, I can honestly say, and I'm, I'm in the business as a pro for 51 years now. It's, you know, uh, and I'm, I still feel like I'm studying things. I'm learning things. You know, it's not, and it's not always just the drums, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'm sitting in my studio now, you know, and I'm, I'm always dealing with technology. I'm always uh, learning uh, programs and, you know, uh, improving my skills as a mixer and a producer. Um, You know, it's just really interesting how you gather information and then you just keep adding it to your tool belt as time goes, like I said, the evolution. Right. The, th- the interesting thing that you said that I think it's important to, to point out is you said the lo- it all started and it's all based in the love for the music. And I think a lot of times we want to be the noun, but we don't want to be the verb. So mm. I want to be, be a drummer, but drummers practice and do all of those things. Or I want to be a writer, but I don't write. Right, I just want to go around and say I'm a touring drummer or I'm a professional musician or something like that, but don't actually want to be a professional and and are maybe you're doing it for the for the wrong reasons or are a little misguided on what it really takes to achieve that level of of professionalism and and skill yeah. and I don't know I think that I sometimes think that some of that is missing now. How do you yeah. feel? Well, I think that it's it's not because people don't feel that way. I think that it's just the environment has changed. The business has changed. How mm-hmm. people connect with each other has changed. You know, you know, over social media, you know, you can um create sort of how you want to look and how you want to be perceived, you know, and he who has the most skills in setting up that image gets the clicks right now some of these people they're fantastic musicians but others haven't had the opportunity to go through a a community of musicians that actually force them to develop to a certain level before they get out there. So because of social media, a young musician just finds themselves out there. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, People like myself and Marcus Miller and Bobby Franceschini and so many other cats from my neighborhood, we went through a process and the cats that came before us were pretty tough on us. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. we had to um, we had to bring our game up in order to just be in the room with them. You know, yep. I didn't, I couldn't go on YouTube and just get videos of the cats that I loved back then, Lenny and Billy Cobham and Buddy Rich and you know all of the cats that I was listening to. That that didn't exist. I had to wait for their tour to come to town, buy a ticket, and go see them play live. Right. And be right. in the room with them, you know, and 
it's interesting because, and and I I have to say I I I got to quote I got to give credit uh, due to where this quote came from that I'm about to tell you. Uh, Victor Bailey, the late great Victor Bailey, who I I played with for many years with a lot of different artists, mainly Weather Report, and then on the other spectrum of musical styles, Madonna. He and I toured with Madonna as well. Um, but Victor Bailey said to me once, because I, I sort of fell out of touring for a moment, and he said, man, you need to you need to get back out there again and start touring again. He said, because people, they they don't just need to hear you play, they need to feel you play. And mm. when Victor said that to me, I was like, wow, that is, that's an interesting perspective. Because I remember going to Mikkel's nightclub uptown and walking in the room and Steve Gadd was on stage and I got to hear and feel him play in the room. Mm -hmm. You know, or when I went to my father's place in Roslyn, Long, Long Island, and uh, Return to Forever was on stage and I got to feel Lenny White play. Right. Or go to a club and hear the Brecker brothers and feel them play, feel, you know what I mean? It's different being in the room than watching cats on the videos. Now I'm not saying that the videos aren't brilliant and they are, but the, the, the energetic field of being in the room with people, I guess that's why we miss, you know, concerts, you know, this COVID thing shut down live shows and people love live shows because of the energy in the room. There's mm -hmm. something about the energy in the room and feeling, you know, the, 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 the sound moving through the air. Yep. It's, it's a different experience. So, you know, it's not bad nor good. It's just different. That's all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, you know, it would be unwise for me to look at uh, the world and say that, you know, it needs to be the same as it was when I was a kid because the world that we live in is always changing. It's always evolving. And, you know, that is the nature of planet Earth. So right. you have to be open and you have to move with it and you have to make the best of uh, what's available to you in the environment so that you can uh, uncover and discover your experience in the world. Everybody's going to have a different path. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you practice what you preach. You know, when, when Lynn drums and electronic drums started replacing drummers, you said, well, okay, well, I'll just learn how to do those things too and learn how to program drums and learn how to get that to be part of what I do. And I can play acoustic drums or I can program drums or I can play electric drums or, and I don't, did you get any flack for that from, from people who were saying, what are you doing, man? That that's what's putting everybody out of business. Well, yeah, but I was, I was too young to be a purist. You know, right. like I said, some of this was survival, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm I'm young. I'm like late teens, early twenties. I'm trying to break into the scene, and then Roger Lynn changes everybody's life with this machine. And there was a segment of work that went away on the session scene, which was called the demo session. Mm -hmm. You know, so so what you would have is you there was a union scale for demo sessions, and there was a union scale for like what would be the kind of you know the master recording, right? And so, and that would happen for records and it would also happen for jingles, mm -hmm. right? So what would, what would happen would be the producer would call you, you would, he, he would demo 
his jingle for the, you know, for Coca-Cola, whoever. Right. The marketing department would get the demo and they would approve it. And then you'd get the final budget to go in and re-record the final thing. But with a drum machine, these producers realize, well, wait a minute, I don't have to hire a drummer for the demo session. I can save the money. I can, in fact, not only the drum machines, but the whole sequencing thing, MIDI sequencing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That flipped it all. So I was like, well, wait a minute. I'm too young to go out like that. <laughs> I ain't going out like that. You're like, I just started. I can't, I can't be I done already. Like, what? So, so I was like, all right, you're going to take your butt down to Manny's Music on 48th Street. And you're going you're gonna to get a, um, a Lindrum. And you're going to add to your business card um, drum programmer. <laughs> let's, nice. let's add nice. that to the business card you know what i mean you, wow, man, i thought i just turned off the phone did that help you get more did it help you get more gigs it did man totally yeah. did. it really did it was huge and i would imagine you know one there's probably not a lot of people embracing it two there's not a lot of people who do it or do it well and if it's the thing then everyone's looking for it i remember uh this is, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but this is, I don't know what this has anything to do with it, but I already started. So here we go. Uh, a buddy of mine's father bought a high def camera mm. for $175,000. Whoa. And uh, he was the only person on the East Coast with a high def camera, video camera for commercials. He, wow. was, he did commercials and it paid for itself in the first month. Of course it did. You know, and it's yeah. like, oh, you have a high def. Sure, whatever, whatever price it is. But yes, we need it. So, and no one else has it. And okay, exactly. great. No, it's it's true, man. You know, I mean, it was really important for me to embrace the change that was happening in the late seventies and early eighties as a young musician who was trying to make a living as a professional musician. You know what I mean? So I was, like I said, I was playing percussion. Um, I was playing drum set. I remember getting gigs because I could sing and play drums at the same time. Sometimes I would get record dates where I was just a background vocalist. Mm -hmm. You know, um, whatever it took to make music, man, you know, yeah. make it happen. Yep. Make it happen. And, yep. um, and then I, I remember doing sessions for uh, this producer named Kashif, who mm -hmm. really talented keyboard player. He played in a band called, I think it was called the BT Express. And um band from Brooklyn. But he he left the band and became a really famous record producer and artist. He produced Whitney Houston's first record. Mm. And wrote uh, uh, her early hits. Really super talented guy. You know, and I remember uh, being at his studio and helping him out with 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 stuff. And uh, also, um, I remember when Marcus Miller got his first drum machine, too. We were actually in Japan, and he bought a Roland uh, 808 drum machine. Nice. And uh, so, so he got, like, one of the original ones. I wonder if he still has it. 
And, uh, you know, it was interesting to watch. I mean, the 808 revolutionized everything. That was remarkable, man. So it, it was really interesting to grow up in that time, you know, of the 808, of the Lindrum, you know, the, 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 the transition into, you know, the big 80s drum sound and, you know, uh, very interesting times to, to, to try to make it in the industry. You know? Right, right. It's one thing to talk about how great Dream symbols are, but it's another thing to actually hear them for yourselves. And the good thing about Dream is not only do they sound great, but they're also priced well below the competitor's prices, so that way you can actually afford to buy these symbols. And if you don't think you can get a great-sounding symbol at a low price, check out DreamSymbols.com. But first, I want you to take a listen to what these things sound like. To learn more about Dream Symbols, be sure to check them out at DreamSymbols.com. I mean, it's interesting because I feel like you're looking at it now where, where people now are saying, oh, well, you know, everything's everything's going going to hell because of the internet and this and that. And you're sort of like, man, I already went through a major change in the industry. We all survived. The music, you know, music kept going. I was thriving. And I'm sure that you probably have the same outlook with everything now. Oh, I do. I do. Because, you know, uh, you know, uh, with disruption comes rebuilding. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And um, like I said, you can't stop change. So it's, it would be unwise to take a, a negative attitude toward it. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's different. And, you know, the learning curve sucks. Mm -hmm. And maybe you don't like how it's unfolding. But at the same time, you also have the opportunity to take this environment and shape it into what you want it to be. So right. I, I really do think that a young musician doesn't have time to look at this as a negative thing. They need to understand the tools that they have that are very different from the tools that I had mm -hmm. that connect them to their potential audience right? And and proceed with that knowledge into what's happening in their time. Mm -hmm. And this is very important because... It's easy to complain about it. I mean, if you, even if, you know, I talked about Motown earlier, you know, Barry Gordy, and I, and I love his story because his story is also a story about a time of change and how he grabbed the bull by the horns, made it work and started Motown Records because there was a need to service uh, the industry with young black African-American R&B artists, and they weren't getting the same opportunities on the major labels. In fact, in the, in the 60s, I mean, in the 50s, a lot of those records by um, African-American artists were, were called race records. Mm -hmm. and a lot of the uh, records that would cross over were basically records that were redone. They were redos. They were, you know, if it was if it was hot in the in the R and B marketplace, it wouldn't cross over. But then maybe a white artist would do those those songs, and right. then they were allowed to cross over because of you know segregated America and everything sure. that was going on in the history. When you go back and look at it, so mm -hmm. so Barry Gordy is looking at this, looking at blues, looking at jazz, looking at what's happening, and realized well. 
I'm going to have to change it. You know, and, yeah. and I remember when I was listening and it was my older cousins who had those Motown records by the Supremes and the Temptations, those 45 RPM. Yeah. Records, right. And, and there was a phrase on the label that I thought was really interesting. It said Motown records, the sound of young America. Hmm. And I was like, whoa, cool. Because Barry Gordy didn't say the sound of black America or the sound of white America or Negro America or Africa. You know what I mean? Right. He, right. right. No, no, no. This music is for everybody. Mm -hmm. and, his, and it was. <laughs> and it was. There are beautiful photographs of the Motown caravan tours going through the South and the, the police would have the, 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 the hall divided down the middle and the white kids would be on one side and the black kids would be on, on the other side until the Temptations came out and started kicking those grooves. And then, and then that line came down. All bets were off. Everybody started dancing together and the yeah. cops didn't do anything about it. And everybody, all these kids are having a great time. And that's what music does, man. Yeah. It, it you know, it, it goes above and beyond the prejudices and it go it, uh, all of the, the negativity. It brings people together. And that's what I've loved about music. And I, and growing up in a time period where bands like Earth, Wind and Fire we're saying, keep your head to the sky, you know, and Sly and the Family Zone is saying, stand. Mm -hmm. Everybody is a star. You know, these are the names of the songs. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, it, it, was, it was an inspiring time to want to make music and bring people together, black, white, yellow, orange, red, whatever. And, you know, and in fact, Sly and the Family Stone it was kind of one of the first crossover interracial bands. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't remember it, uh, but I had Greg Arico on a few months or maybe a month ago, and we were talking about this where they and they sort of didn't really think anything of it. You know, yeah. they were just like, hey, man, we're just like creating this, this friends, music. For everyone. Yeah. You're just having a great time with your friends. And, you know, most musicians, you know, they're not thinking about it like that. You know, mm -hmm. can you play, you know, or, or, you know, can you play this funky beat? Can you right. play that guitar part? Can you sing? All right. So you're green and you've got three eyes and you're from Mars. Who cares? You're right. in the band. You Doesn't know? matter to me. Right. <laughs> like, it sounds good. Join the band, you know? Yeah. You know, so, you know, this is a beautiful thing that music does. And I think I've carried that with me as a professional. And I think that is why. I also wanted my career to reflect that. And I think that's why at, at a certain point I'm showing up on rock records, jazz records, funk records, pop records. You know what I mean? Because that I, I didn't want to be typecast as a drummer. Mm -hmm. I, I mm -hmm. was really desperately trying not to be typecast. You know, they hold the bag open for you and it's, it says a label and it's just jazz drummer. All right, go ahead and jump in and <laughs> yeah. I jump over that bag, you know, you right. Know, I'm not trying to jump into any of those bags. My my goal as a drummer was to just become a a a um a worthy collaborator. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I I wanted people to say, well, 
You know, I'm doing a session. Oh, call him. You know, just call mm-hmm. him. He's going to he'll hook you up. Just call him, you know, and no matter what it is. And, 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 and eventually my, my attitude and my uh, sort of goal, my heart got me into these, these different situations, you know, and right. to, to, to have the opportunity to make music with people, help them realize their vision and also move through different genres and learn how to become comfortable in all of them. Right. It's really an interesting process for me. Yeah. Where did where did your career really turn? Was it the Carly Carly Simon gig? You think that was where you sort of because I mean I I feel like you look at your career and it's like you got on this rocket ship and and it was like, you know, Carly Simon and Weather Report and David Bowie and then I mean it go then it's then it's everyone from there. Well, yeah, it was interesting because um as a teenager, I was sort of dealing with the sort of the blueprint of what I wanted to do. You know, mm-hmm. I was playing with rock bands and funk bands and pop bands as a kid. And then um, I, I remember when I when I graduated high school, there was well, even hold on, let me back up a little bit. I did my first tour at age 15 years old with a guy named Jay Mason. He was a he was a black artist, tall, like six foot four. He used to love to dress like a cowboy. And he was like a folk singer, but he hired this kind of funky rock band with, with myself on drums, a great guitar player named Eddie Martinez. Mm. Um, the, the MD was a guy named Denzel Miller, incredible keyboardist. And the bass player was a guy named Larry Smith. Who was who also grew up in the Hollis area and did a lot of work with Run DMC and Russell Simmons and that group. But Larry was an amazing bass player. So that was the first band I went on a tour with, and we were opening for um, people like. Uh, actually, we 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 opened for Sly. We opened for a band on the West Coast called Cold Blood. Remember Cold Blood? I don't. I I know them. Uh, who? Oh man! You if you don't. Someone was talking about them. Um, I, I'm familiar with them. Yeah, I am familiar with them. Well, Cold, Cold Blood is a band that a lot of drummers should check out because they had a insane drummer in that band. I'm, I'm going off alone a little tangent here. Oh, I like this. I like this. Um, his name was Sandy McKee. Um, and Sandy, in fact, uh, I would say. Uh, there's a there's a song that has an incredible drum solo on it. The song is called Shop Talk. Shop it's on Talk. an album called Sisyphus or Sisyphus. I guess it's a it's a is Sisyphus or is that a Greek god or something? Anyway, I'm sort of spacing out a little bit on the concept of of what that name was, but um, Shop Talk by Cold Blood. You got to hear this drum solo. I got it queued up here. I'm going to listen to it as soon as we get off. <laughs> and I, it's funny because, you know. Yeah, Sisyphus. Sisyphus? Yeah, yeah. S-I-S-Y-P-H-U-S. Exactly. San Francisco yeah. band. Yeah. Kind of the precursor band to Tower of Power. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I, I ran into um, Dave Garibaldi somewhere. And I said, dude, what happened to Sandy McKee? And he said, you know about Sandy McKee? I was like, hell yeah, I know about Sandy McKee. <laughs> 
the hook, man. I mean, Shop Talk, that was another drum solo in the hood that you had to learn how to play. There was right. only one guy in, the, in our hood that could play it really well. There's a drummer named Howie Gray. Mm-hmm. And his band, he had a band called the, the Firebolts. And they they would play Shop Talk. And nice. Howie would play that solo. And all of the drummers in the hood would just fall out on the, on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome, man. And, and uh, yeah, so you got to hear this thing. Garibaldi said to me that he had never seen a drummer like Sandy McKee before. And he said, Omar, what was what was really weird about Sandy was that he played the hi-hat lower than the snare drum. What? Yeah, so most cats would have the, the hi-hat on, on, over the snare, but Sandy didn't like the fact that the, the his arm would get in the way, you know, for the backbeat. Right. Well, he put the hi-hat lower than the snare drum. So weird. Was he, so, Did he play open-handed? I, I don't know. I think he didn't because there would. why would he have to put the hi-hat lower? So when Gar- I had never seen Sandy play. There was another drummer there by the time I, w- I did this opening act thing, right, with mm-hmm. Jay Mason. And I was heartbroken that Sandy wasn't there. I couldn't watch him play. But right. the drummer he had was, was mean. But Garibaldi told, explained to me what what uh, sandy mckee was doing and i was like holy crap that is uh. sort of explains a lot so when you hear this drum solo on shop talk it might explain some of the insanity right and those drummers from san francisco have a thing man garibaldi uh gregorico yeah andy you know there's a there's a little there's a crew of drummers from San Francisco, that like Oakland, that Oakland funk thing. They got their thing, man. It's a thing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you got to respect the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I know. From the East Coast funk. Yeah, it is. It's totally different from the East Coast funk. You know, totally different. But really, it was a fun time, man. It was a, it was a fun time. So, you know, I, I was talking about, you know, sort of my career path. That's why, and I went off on that tangent. Right. Like we were opening for those people. And then I got done with that tour with Jay Mason. Eddie Martinez and I are hanging out in New York City. We grab a Village Voice newspaper, which was free back then. You could grab it out of a newspaper box in any corner. And there were classified ads in the back. And so we're, we're looking, let's see if there's any gigs happening or whatever. So we, we open up the back, Musicians Classified. There's an ad there. It says... Uh, drummer and guitarist needed for recording and touring act. I was like, wow. Here we go. <laughs> Let's call the number. Right. Got a, dime, got a dime for the phone call. No cell phones back then, right? Yeah. So we, we throw a dime in the phone booth. And um, the guy picks up on the other end and says, are you available to come to Carol Music Studio on West 41st Street in a half hour? And we were like, yeah, hung up the phone, jumped on the A train, went down to Carol Music Studio. We walk in and um, I recognize there's two girls at the microphone and I, I recognize them. I'm like, why do I know them? 
And then I said, wait a minute. That looks like Nona Hendricks from LaBelle. And wait a minute. So that's Sarah Dash. Well, hold on. I said to Eddie, is this LaBelle? And 10 minutes later, Patty LaBelle walked in. It was, it was an audition for LaBelle. The big hit at, the, at that moment was called Lady Marmalade. Mm-hmm. The huge hit on the radio for them. And they were looking for a drummer and a guitar player. And of course, me being in cover bands and you know listening to like a zillion records, I knew Lady Marmalade and I could nail that beat with no problem. They counted that thing off. And I was right there for them. <laughs> Didn't they have, I, I feel like they would have better resources to find a band than to put a classified ad out and just pick anyone off the street, right? But that's, but that's what was happening back then. It's crazy to me. It was weird. There were, there were, there were open audition calls. Right. You know what I mean? And if they wanted to find new people, again, you know, it was a different time. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The good news is that they hired Eddie and I on the spot. <laughs> Amazing. Right? I'm 16 now. Patty finds out that I'm 16 and she goes, boy, I ain't taking you out of school. You, <laughs> I got a son your age. And you, you're in high school. And you, I was like, actually, you can take me out of school. Please take me out of school. <laughs> right. <laughs> I want to play. But she said, actually, you know what? This is going to work out because the drummer that we have, and I can't think of his name right now, he he, our tour got extended and he can't do the weekend dates, but he can do the dates during the week. So why don't, so why don't, why don't you do Friday, Saturday, Sunday dates? And then we'll let our other drummer do Monday, any tour dates that come up between Monday and Thursday. And I was like, wow. So, you know, I went to school. I got out early on a Friday. Sometimes I took Friday off to play gigs with LaBelle at 16 years old blew my mind man were you like strutting around high school because i would have been no i i it was <laughs> you know it was weird because it was it was music and art high school so there were musicians all around right that's true were, we're playing gigs i right. mean they knew like i was on gigs and people were like dude you're, you're wow you're playing with a bell and then the year before that, we had a little one-hit wonder band that had like a number one R&B song on the radio. So mm-hmm. it wasn't unusual that, you know, there were uh, kids that were acting at performing arts that were on Broadway shows. And right. it was sort of like a public professional school on a certain level. Got you. you a know, school like, that you almost skipped to go to, to go to Paris, right? And that to join, oh, a, to yeah. be in a band that ended up being chic. You know that story. I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other. We'll get into that later. <laughs> um, so I guess what, what my point was, was that before that, that what you called turning point gig, mm-hmm. I was quite busy as a teenager. Uh, you know, Jay Mason, LaBelle. When I graduated from school, I, I got another classified ad in the paper I answered. And I'm 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 auditioning in front of uh, the manager for Bruce Springsteen. Um, his name was Mike Appel, and he had just signed a new artist uh, called Arlen Gale. And um, and this this was more of a rock band. Mm-hmm. And um, and actually, the bass player 
who was really a cool guy. His name was Ivan Elias or Elias. I, and he played for a band called Scandal. Remember Scandal? Mm-mm. Patty Smith or Smith? Patty Smith and Scandal. No. Anyway, uh, great bass player. And we had a lot of fun. We made a record uh, with, with Arlen Gale called Back to the Midwest Nights. And during the recording of that record, uh, Steely Dan was recording Asia in the next room. Nice. Uh, there were a lot of people in and out of that studio. The engineer, uh, who was kind of uh, Mike Appel's main boy, was a guy named Louis Lahav, who also recorded a mix Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. So that was a really interesting kind of moment for me out of high school. It was sort of my first foray into being in a more purely rock and roll band, even though I had been playing rock funk funky rock or whatever right and we went out and we were opening for like the doobie brothers and and uh this incredible guitarist named rory gallagher mm-hmm. um really interesting stuff and then i get home and then the tom brown thing happens uh marcus miller and i were doing a lot of gigs together uh and then marcus is the one who introduced me to Mike Manieri. And that's how I got the Carly Simon gig. Right. Marcus had, in fact, Marcus broke into the session scene before me. Okay. Marcus was such a great sight reader. Like he could read anything. Mm-hmm. Like it was remarkable. Right. And he, he played clarinet in the, in the orchestra in, at music and art and bass in the jazz band and in the gospel choir. So Marcus Miller and I were like the rhythm section for the gospel choir at Music and Art High School. Then I was sharing the drum chair in the jazz band with Kenny Washington and another awesome drummer named uh, Dwayne Perdue. Mm-hmm. Like y- young drummers that were just ridiculous. Um, uh, uh, who else was there during the time? Bobby Franceschini was there, Bela Fleck was there. Oh, nice playing guitar. He wasn't playing banjo. He's playing guitar. Oh, his uh, drummer's interesting. Future band. Oh man. Crazy. Just yeah, wonderful. So, you know, Marcus introduces me to Mike. The gig was uh, Kazumi Watanabe. My first time going to Japan, 1980. Steve Jordan couldn't do it. Steve Jordan and um, Peter Erskine played on that record. Mm-hmm. Neither one of them could do it. Steve Jordan had a tour with the, the 20... Fourth Street Band, I think they were called. And uh, Erskine was about to go out with the report and they needed a drummer. And Marcus said, call my boy Omar. And they called me and I was like, whoa, I'm going to Japan. This is awesome. 19, April of 1980. Nice. And, um, and I hit it off with Mike Maneri. He loved my playing. When we got home, he says to me, can you play rock? And I was like, yeah. He said, do you? And, and I said, I sing too. And I've you know, been doing it for a while. He said, really? He said, uh, all right, well, I just finished producing a Carly Simon record. The record was called Come Upstairs. And uh, he said, we're doing a tour. So I'm going to hire you for the tour. Okay, cool. Perfect. Uh, and that was uh, my first time meeting um, um, Mark Egan bass player mm-hmm. he was the bass player on that tour huh very very short tour unfortunately yeah 
uh, Warren Bernhard on keyboard, Sid McGinnis on guitar. Uh, it was a stellar, lovely band, man. Yeah. And I was singing back up and playing drums with Carly. And then right behind that, I met David Sanborn. And, and then, so, so I would say that, yeah, meeting Mike Maneri and Marcus kind of connecting me into that crew was a turning point mm -hmm. in 1980 for me, a huge turning point. How, how do you digest all of these, these records that you've played on and all of these experiences that you've had and all of these artists that you've played with? Are there one, I mean, we don't always want to look in the rear view mirror, but there's no way to, to not look at the, that your past, that all the things that you've done. Um, are there particular ones that stick out to you, you know, like the Dire Straits records or, or with Sting or the stuff that you did with, with whoever, Miles Davis, or, I mean, what, what is it that, that really sticks out to you uh, over the years that, that is really like, man, I can't believe I was on that record or I worked with that person or. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. It's really interesting because to be honest with you, I can't say that I saw any of it coming other than the fact that I was just following the music. Mm -hmm. And it's weird because I, I love music so much and I love drumming so much. And I think that that energy sort of propelled me into places where I found myself in the room with people that shared the same passion and energy. You know, it's funny. It's like they say birds of a feather flock together. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe that's an oversimplification of what I'm saying, but I do believe in energetic pull. And I do believe in um, that when you do stuff with, with passion and intensity, that the, that the universe delivers you to the place where you can realize that that you're trying to do right you know what i mean it's almost mm -hmm. like and and it was weird because i remember uh a friend of mine saying to me well you play the same whether you're in a club or 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 like at the garden mm -hmm. you and 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 I thought that was interesting because I never thought about it like that. But then I I took I was like, well, that's energy. That's your passion coming out. You know what I mean? If, if right. you, I'm the enthusiasm, the love, you know, the excitement, um, the 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 desire uh, to to have a a full and deep and complete experience as a music artist. And to and to immerse yourself in that experience, mm -hmm. um, I think it's it's you'll find yourself being delivered to some really interesting places because because people like you know when I look back, people like David Bowie and Nile and Sting, they're coming from the same place when you think about right. Madonna, right? You know, so they're looking for people who feel the way they do about music. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, and you know, all right, so they're the stars, but you, but you want a band of, of cats that, 
come in and they they play with that sense of passion and that generosity and that fun and that you know what I mean and right. and and all of a sudden you start realizing that that energy is the thing that changes your life that energy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know what I mean and that energy has the power to prevail no matter what time period you're in, which brings us back to what we were talking about, you know, these days, you know, well, what's a young musician dealing with these days? Well, the cream still, the cream still rises to the top and the energy still rises above any of the so-called limitations of the moment. Right. Because the people who are awesome are awesome and their passion delivers them to where they need to go. So as much as, um, music is a profession for me. It's also a spiritual path for me, mm-hmm. or or I recognize it as that many years later. Right. You know what I mean? That I'm not just um, practicing music, but I'm also practicing faith. Hundred percent. You know, 100%. the faith to, to proceed, knowing that I'm going to be okay, mm-hmm. knowing that somehow the bills are going to get paid. <laughs> and the, right. You know, you know, and I, I, and you know what? I've had the ups and downs. The music business is a tough business. Right. Right. You know what I mean? And and anybody that we're naming right now that has so-called made it in the music business has had their ups and their downs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I I remember doing clinics and, um, you know, and the parents would be there with their kids at some of these clinics and, and so one mom got up in my clinic and, you know, my son is, you know, 11 years old and, you know, he wants to be a professional musician and, you know, and I'm saying, you know, it's great study, study your music and, you know, and, and, and also have your safety net and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, what do you suggest? How do you feel about that? And I said, well, I said, what I'm getting ready to tell you is not going to be what you want to hear at all. But if you want to make it in the music business, you're going to have to remove that safety net. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sorry. You're going to have to get rid of that. The, you know why? Because the moment it gets a little hard, you're going to jump into that damn net. And the moment it, 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 it gets a little tough or the moment people are dissing you, you know, or they don't like what you, you know, and then it's going to get tough. And then you, no, 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 no. You know, the, 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 the music business is not for the faint of heart either. <laughs> no, it's not. No, you know it is I mean? not. You got to grow a little bit of a thick skin and you got to be willing to get out there in the game and fight and mm-hmm. compete. And, and and it's funny because my mindset isn't that I'm in a competition with somebody else. My mindset is more, I'm in a competition with myself on a certain, it was just a weird thing to say, I guess. No, but, I, yeah, I agree with that. But it's I like, agree with that. I need to bring my game up as a musician and as a person and as a collaborator so that people want to work with me. Mm-hmm. I, I got to make sure that I'm, I am, like I said, a worthy collaborator. Right. Right. You know, how do I do that? You know? So I, I need to kind of have that mindset, but it's definitely the, it, the music path. The spiritual path of music, I call it, I used to call it the 30-day miracle. <laughs> <laughs> What's I that mean? 
I tell people I'm living the 30 day because every 30 days the rent got paid, you know, the phone <laughs> bill got paid, the car note, you know, it's a 30 day miracle. And it's weird because um, it's almost like part of the spiritual path is that you get to see the creator's hand in your life. Yeah. You mm -hmm. got to be willing, though, to be fearless and take the jump. You know, it's like this. There's a saying about when you take one step, the Lord takes 10. Mm -hmm. But that is a faith thing. Because sometimes that one step is really scary. Yeah. It's really scary. Yeah. But I've, wi I've witnessed the 110 thing myself. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I've actually witnessed it myself. And I've watched the 30-day miracle at work. And it's not to say that it's always been that easy, because it hasn't. Mm -hmm. Because I've had really lean times, and I've had, you know ups and downs and things that I'm not even going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to spare you the blood and guts. And you know what I mean? But so how do you deal with, how do you deal with those ups and downs or the negative self-talk or the fear of failure or the fear of the first step? How have you been able to, to over, overcome some of those things? Because I feel like we are our biggest enemy most of the time and we get in our, in our way and it's not everyone else. It's just us with these, with these, falsehoods that we're telling ourselves are these negative, you know, yeah, yeah. No, that, that, beliefs. that's true, man. That, that inner chatter is, is, is huge. And I think that what a lot of musicians need to realize is that with music, it's not about them. And, and that's okay. Maybe that's a weird place to start. But the reason I start there is because if you can honestly look at music and your participation in music and say that it's not about you, that it's about the music and that your ability to play music is a gift from whatever, high, whatever name you give the higher power or the source of everything and that the, the spiritual path part of it says to me that music is part of the fabric of the creation and humanity. So as musicians, we are just connecting with the thing that we are already. We, you know, I, I'm not saying, what am I saying? I'm saying that we are music, mm -hmm. right? So when you say that I'm going to be a musician, a professional, then you're now making a commitment. It's almost like to the to the power that sustains the universe on a certain level. Yep. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and once you do that, and and once you commit to it wholeheartedly, then you will discover that you don't have enough time for that negative inner chatter. Because you're you're always trying, you're always remembering your gift came from somewhere else. It's not you, and your only job is to cultivate it and to practice it and to share it. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's your job. I love it. I mean, that's wow. The, I, 
I'm I'm speechless. I mean, that's that's the most or that's the best explanation I've ever heard of it of getting out of your own way for the instrument, getting out of your own way for the music and just mm. sort of being just sort of being the, you know, the pipeline, right? Yeah. Just the conduit yeah. and just stepping back and letting the music do what it does. Yeah, because, you know, at that point, you know, you are also having the experience with the audience. You are also the audience. You're, you know what I mean? I, you know, people would come up to me and say, man, you have a good gig. I say, well, you too, because we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're both <laughs> together. The only difference is, is you're sitting out there and I'm up here, but we're experiencing this thing together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I usually leave other people's gigs and I say, man, I really played well tonight. Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> you, know you, you know, something that energy, you talk about being in the room with somebody, right. feeling what happened in that room, you know, and everybody has that exhilaration and they leave with that uplift and that, you know, mm -hmm. it, and, and, and you realize that this is so much bigger than you. Yeah. That's what I said. It's not about you. You're just, it's, you know what I mean? It's, it's bigger. It's, yeah. like, whoa, you know, so, so we get lost in that. I think, you know, I think we, what's the saying where you got to see the, the forest, you know, instead of just the trees, That's the trees, man, you, you know, know? And once you get there, you've removed that anxiety off of yourself. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, and that's huge because, you know, when I was young, I was uh, afraid of making mistakes, you know, and I was, I was nervous initially, like when I was playing with my dad very young and, you know, it's funny, but then after a while, after those first few mistakes, and then you sort of stumble and you get up again and then you you turn and then you learn to um sort of turn those mistakes into music mm -hmm. and then i heard one guy one musician say that it's not a mistake it was just something that was trying to come through and you got in the way wow you got in the way of it <laughs> i like that you know what i mean so yeah. we learn the the longer we play the instrument we learn to get out of the way of the experience. You know, we, we practice rudiments and we learn the language so that we can ultimately speak. Mm -hmm. You know, you and I are having a conversation right now. We're not thinking about uh, the rules and the phonetical, uh, you know, things that you learn in language. You know, right now we're right. just having a conversation. We're kicking it, we're laughing, we're expressing, mm -hmm. you know, and that's the music language, same deal, you know? Yeah. You know, we, we learn the language, we learn the rudiments, we learn the scales, the chords, you know, everything. But forget all of that when you get on stage and have that conversation with your colleagues on stage and with the audience. Mm -hmm. That's the intangible that I always think is so hard. I mean, even, I mean, it's still, you know, I, I still have to work on it uh, mm. every day. But that was something that was a, that was something that really opened up my eyes as a younger player when I realized that I was there to have a conversation and all those things. But I think that's a hard part to get to, unless like you said, you have older people who are showing you the way or, or you have people who are challenging you or explaining it to you. I think it's, I think that's a, it's the most important thing. And I also think it's the hardest thing to get to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's really something else. It's a, well, it's, it's, you know, when I think about music, as I said it earlier, you know, we're always evolving. The evolution never stops. Mm -hmm. And and my analogy is, you know, when you hear a doctor 
talk about a job, you notice that they call, they say that they have a medical practice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's what we have. We have a practice. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, we practice music, yep. you know, and, and we practice music because it, it and the, 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 uh, the the skill set that are, are around it that has us uh, be involved in the world as professionals is always changing and always evolving. Mm-hmm. So it requires us to be in a mindset of practice. Yeah. Hey, are you tired of coded drum heads chipping and flaking after only a few hours of play? Tired of premature denning and breakage? Well, welcome to the next generation of coded drum heads, Evan's new UV coding technology. They're made with proprietary inks and a new UV-like curing process, so these heads are able to withstand strikes, brush strokes, and rim shots better than anything on Earth. That means you get to play heads that sound and look fresh for longer, and you can spend less time tuning and modifying and changing heads. They're available in one-ply and two-ply, as well as Evans' proprietary hydraulic and EMAD systems. Check them out by going to evansdrumheads.com. Do you know why when you tune a drum, you're supposed to go diagonal across the drum that's because your drum is flawed i hate to break it to you but your drum is flawed because of the way that the edge is the typical edge doesn't allow the drum head to sit on it properly so when you tighten down one lug it causes the drum head to shift and pop up on the other side that's why you have to tune it diagonally but now with the new sonic clear edge from mapex that's a thing of the past. The Sonic Clear Edge allows the head to sit flush, so it promotes ease of tuning, increased shell resonance, and optimal tonal clarity. So you're going to have to do a lot less work and get a lot greater sound. To learn more about the Sonic Clear Edge, go to mapexdrums.com. I've always said that about meditation where people are like, oh, it's really hard. And I said, well, that's why they call it a practice. It's a practice. Exactly. You have to do it every day, you know, and, and every day you become more adept and more comfortable with it mm-hmm. as the days go by. Right now, drumming for me is just fun. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think about drumming the way I did, you know, 50 years ago. You know, mm-hmm. it's really for me, it's, I, it's something that is just fun, you know? How is it and, different than it was 50 years ago? Well, when you're young, you feel like you have something to prove. Right. Because you're trying to make it, you know, and you want people to accept you and you know what I mean? And then, mm-hmm. then there's a little bit of that competitive spirit and, you know, all of that. And drumming being a very physical instrument, it's easy to have that right uh, vibe. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But for me, it was interesting because um, I was a professional sideman. So, you know, I wasn't getting hired to play drum solos, even though I grew up, you know, in the language and and learning the facility and having the necessary tools to do that. Mm -hmm. But but I was getting paid to accompany singers and to help people in the studio make records and, and help them realize their creative vision. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so that was a, a really interesting process. And I think that now, after doing it for over 50 years, I, I'm very comfortable with walking into situations now and 
sort of knowing like how to read the artists and how to listen to their music and right you know what what i can how i can frame their music mm -hmm. rhythmically you know what i mean mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just from having so much reference and so many things that uh so much experience the experience gives me a level of, of confidence and comfort that i can walk into a, a situation right now and really have fun with it right knowing what you know now if you were 20 years old or and didn't have all the connections and know everyone now or if you were giving advice to your 20 year old self or to another 20 year old <laughs> i are yeah i see what, where this is going <laughs> what 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 would you say or what would you do differently or what would you suggest that that someone who is trying to quote unquote make it or break in what would you do i would say keep your dream and your goal first and foremost in your mind and don't let anybody sway you off of what you believe in because i i have done that sometimes you know headed, headed down a path and then somebody says something to me and then i changed my direction because you know somebody who had a different agenda for me you know like mm -hmm. say if you're a manager or somebody in business oh you know you need to do this you need to do that and then you know i didn't follow my dream mm -hmm. or my my idea right you know it's important it's important to to stay focused on what it is that you're trying to accomplish and actually uh clarify it you know write it hang it on the wall mm -hmm. you know make it make it a tangible thing that you live with and that you breathe and you know that you uh focus on because because at that moment the, you know that propels you in the direction mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. that propels you. It's really interesting. You know, again, I talk about energy before. Yeah. Um, um, what else would I say? I mean, that's the biggest thing because we already know, like, practice, 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 learn the rudiments, learn the music uh, right. theory, learn all of those things. You're going to, you got to do that. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the struggle is the inner chatter and the, the, the faith part, mm -hmm. you know, I agree. And, and, you know, for me, it was like, what I realized was I might be out of work right now, but that doesn't mean I don't have work to do. So therefore there's no such thing as an out of work musician. You might not be playing any gigs right now. You might, but there's always, work to do yeah you know what i mean so i i tried to use that time you know i if i if if things slowed down i was like all right well i'm gonna practice write some music and then once i figured out what my flow was professionally because for me what i noticed was i'd work 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 and then around the end of december everything would slow down and then it would be dead for like, for me at least, like January, February, and then March would kick back up again. Mm -hmm. 
And so early on, I would run out of money, like, you know, after the holidays. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? So then I learned, I was like, okay, well, I know that historically, here's what happens. And I started saving money so that when January and February rolled around, I could chill. Right. You know what right. I mean? And then, then I would be ready for for that time so that I could practice and, you know, I could mm-hmm. uh, be ready. And then March, like clockwork, the calls would start and, you know, things would kick up again. And I think everybody has their personal season. That might work different for different people. Sure, sure. You know? Um and and but you know it's funny you you said that I I I was talking about saving money and I I would say that musicians need to learn about finance and I, I wish that I wish that somebody taught me that young mm-hmm. uh cuz I've I've earned a fortune and lost a fortune right right and, you know what I mean yep. and you know, between you know, doing dumb stuff and divorce and, you know, whatever, you know, the ups and downs, like I talked about the ups and downs, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, and I didn't know, you know, and I realized that young musicians don't, you know, we don't always have people telling us about this. And then the music business is such that you have so many people in your pocket. Yeah. That they're not telling you either. Mm -hmm. You know, they're getting their commissions and you know they're they're getting whatever they're getting you know what i mean but i would say that if you could learn some some if you could take a course about economics or learn about investing and mm-hmm. that sort of thing yep home ownership like retirement home ownership all of that right that is huge and I think that sometimes when musicians make it, you know, I've been watching, I've been watching these, uh, they're sort of like these uh, behind the music kind of series. I forgot the name of this particular one, but it's a little more focused on R and B bands. Like I know the one on VH1, right? Behind right, the music. right. And the similar stories. Um, I think the the one I'm talking about is called Unsung. Hmm. And the and the last one I saw was about the Ohio Players. Nice. They had a drummer in that band. I think it's, they they called him Diamond. This dude was ridiculous, man. I forgot his full name. Right. Ridiculous drummer. And what a sound! What a pocket! But in the in the in the show, one of the guys in the band was saying, you know, when when the Ohio Players blew up, they thought the good times were going to last forever. Isn't that the case with everyone? Musicians, yeah. athletes, every you know, entertainers. They thought the good times were going to last forever, and then the thing came crashing down. Mm-hmm. And be, and that's uh, that's only because you, there's there's nobody around teaching musicians about this, and the people that service musicians, unfortunately, they're not all super ethical. Right. Right. It's <laughs> a nice way of saying it. Yeah. That's very PC of you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I have a bunch of other words and expletives that I would use to describe that I'm right. not going to share with you right now. But, you know, you know, how do you protect yourself? How do you, mm-hmm. you know? And so that would be what I would tell my 20 year old self 
also. Yeah. I also think it's important to that people realize where there's sort of a I don't know if it's a saying, but it's an adage that if you won't save 10% out of 100, then you won't save 10% out of 100,000 or a million because it's the habit of of doing it. And people say, oh, if I made more money, I'd save more. But there's yeah. a story about a UPS driver who never made more than $14,000 a year. Mm. And when he died, he had $70 million that he left to his kids. Holy crap. $70 million. So it's like, <laughs> well, that's what they, they say, rich people save or they save first and spend what's left and poor people spend first and save what's left. Exactly. Exactly. So it's this mindset that I wish that I understood a little better as a kid. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because I've, I've made a lot of money in the, in the music business over 50 years, you know? Right. Right. Uh, And I said, I've made a fortune. I've lost a fortune. And what you discover is as you get older, it's harder to, you know, uh, regain what you've lost. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, I'm okay. Thank God. You know, everything's mm-hmm. good. I'm busy. It's all good. You know, I don't have any complaints. Right. You know, the universe is uh, taking good care of me. And, and, and I'm, still bu- I'm still busy. I'm still playing, you know, loving it more than ever, like I said before. But that's right. what I would tell my 20-year-old self. Well, I like it. Get some education about this. I agree with that. The one thing I would like to point out where you said, where you've talked multiple times about the universe delivering these things to you, but I'd, I'd also add one thing to that is the mm. universe delivered all that as for also because you were working hard. You weren't sitting on the couch saying, oh, I hope that this the universe delivers me all these gigs. Like, no, you were yeah. working for that too. You know? Yeah. It's true. So I don't can't... want anyone to sit on the couch thinking, well, Omar said that just, to... no, no, no. You've got to put it out there, but you got to put in the work too. Yeah. You got to make the intention. Yeah, for the, sure. The universe responds to intention and it responds to action. Yep. It doesn't know what you want unless you take the action and you create, and you create the intention. Mm-hmm. How is it going to know? How is that? How is the, that mechanism going to respond to you? Yep. Right. Yeah. So, Yes, it is about action and intention. I agree. Omar, I one, I want to thank you for spending so much time with me and and I appreciate you coming on the podcast and you've like I said, you've influenced my playing in a way that I can't even describe to you in words from all oh, of wow. the the records that I've listened to that you've played on over the years and watching YouTube videos and all sorts of different things and I know that you've done that for for thousands and thousands of drummers around the world as well. Mm. But I also want to commend you on your humility and the constant drive to continue to get better and to understand that you are the eternal student. And I think that that is inspiring to all of us to know that even when you get to a level like yours, there's always room for improvement and that keeps us chasing you which is making all of us drummers better. So thank you for that so very much. Thank you. That's lovely. Thank you. Thank of course. You words, man. <laughs> and uh, anytime you would like to come back on, I would, I would love to have you. And again, thank you for being part of the podcast. Oh, my pleasure, man. This was awesome talk. Thank you so Likewise. much. Likewise. There you have it. The legend. Mr. Omar Hakim. You can find the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash 
session 584. Also, if you enjoyed this, please leave a rating or review. You can do that on iTunes. You know that. It takes about a minute, but it's good for me to show up higher in the search results so more people will listen to the podcast. And I I really hope that you go back and listen to this episode again. He has done so many things throughout his career, so many different styles, and the way that he has reinvented himself over the years is a lesson for all of us, especially now during these crazy times where we we always have to be reinventing ourselves. But now specifically, it's good to remember that no matter what obstacles and barriers stand in your way, you can always reinvent yourself. You can always think around it. You can always figure out the problem. I love I love the saying, everything is figure outable. And I know that's not a word, but I love I love the sentiments that whatever challenge we're facing, we can figure it out. So if you find yourself stuck, figure it out, as my father would say. I hope that helps. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.